I have said this before, it's always bittersweet when we come to the end of a book. Uh, we've been working our way through. It always feels like you're leaving a good friend behind, uh, even though we know we're not really. And so out of curiosity this week, I was just crunching some numbers. Uh, and so since I've been here at the church teaching Sunday school primarily for the first five years or so, um, and then being primary preaching for the last 11 um, it's hard to believe 17 years goes by in a blink. Uh, I remember bringing my little four-month-old fuzzy-headed son in the doors who always kicked his shoes off in the nursery. And um, there was some older ladies that were very concerned because he went around shoeless at the time. Uh, he has survived, you know, so he's done okay. Um, and so I was crunching some numbers, and together we've had the joy uh, of working through uh, about 20% of books of the Bible and uh, about... The hard thing, though, is word count. you got big books like Genesis and Psalms, so about 10% of the content of the Bible. And so I um, have been thankful for the opportunity to just work through the text of Scripture with you. And Nehemiah has been one of those books that has been a personal encouragement and blessing to me. And so I wanted us to take uh, one last look at Nehemiah and really look at him. And as we've come to the end of the book, to recognize uh, Nehemiah, as he's writing this, uh, is really wrestling through some things, and uh, I believe that it would be a help and encouragement to all of us to think about it from his perspective one last time before we uh, walk away from this wonderful book. Let me try to maybe help us think through it this way. There are some things in life that are difficult to process. Uh, certainly, there are positive ones like a surprise party, a surprise birthday party, things like that, that you're suddenly in shock and, oh no, how do I, what, what is happening? I'll never forget showing up at my mother-in-law's house uh, at Thanksgiving, completely surprising her there with my wife and, and her screaming and how excited she was and just... That takes a moment for the person to think through that and realize that uh, other, maybe even fun ones, if you're one of those people that loves to go to a haunted house or jump scares. Um, I watched Jaws this week with, with uh, my sons, and I could not wait for, and those of you that are familiar, I mean, it came out in like 76. So if I'm spoiling for you, that's on you at this point, right? But there's a moment where the music's building, and it's building, it's building, and the diver looks in the, this hole in the boat, and you're expecting Jaws to jump out, and it's like a dead body. It's one of the most famous jump scares. I wasn't watching the screen. I was watching my son, and I got the full effect of that jump scare. It was a beautiful moment, beautiful moment. Uh, and, and so there's those, you're like, ah, and, and then it's kind of fun. And it just takes you a second to process it, to mentally just work through it and uh, think through what's going on. There's also some negative things, though, that can be hard to process in life. Uh, sudden trauma. Um, there's even language that sociologists use to describe it, things like trauma shock uh, that happens. And uh, trauma debilitated is how a person feels. And uh, they've done all this research and studies that your brain function lowers. Your ability to make decisions slows. Uh, things that otherwise were very easy for you become very difficult for you. And it's really God's way, the way he's designed the, the human bodies, they've done brain studies, is your brain is getting flooded with all these chemicals and it intentionally slows you down. And it's so that you can survive because you simply, you, you can't process all the things that are happening in that moment in a very negative way. Some people even say that they felt trauma stupid. Like suddenly they were not as smart as they used to be because of what they were going through. 
All of this to just describe to you this morning how hard it is in life to process certain things, to think through them, to understand them in their context, and to adjust to the new normal of life. There are things that are um, happy, adjusting the news of a new baby is on its way, a raise at work, successful completion of something. All of those are an easier adjustment for us to make, to process, than negative things like a sudden death or a terrible diagnosis. Biblically, there are things that are hard to process, things like the wicked prospering, the righteous suffering. This is hard to process. Even in the Bible for God's servants, it's hard for them to understand and just work through this reality. Suffering in general is very difficult to process. One of the things that that keeps showing up as a theme in the Bible that's hard for us to think through and to work through is a season of fruitlessness when we've been faithful. The feeling that I've done what all I could do and yet there's no fruit for it. I look back and I just don't see the benefit and the blessing of the effort and the time. You know, there, there is a, this whole concept out there of, uh, of reward and time investment. And uh, kids learn this pretty quickly, I think, in school. Or I, I say quickly, it, they learn it through school. Uh, you could put in a certain amount of effort and get an A. Or you could put in another four hours and go from a 90 to a 93. And you, you, you learn over time that four hours isn't worth it. And so you're constantly adjusting, and as you go through different kinds of schooling, you're learning that. You could study those spelling words for an hour and be pretty assured of getting a high B or an A, or you could study it for four hours and only get two more points. It's just not worth the other four hours. And you learn that through negative experiences of not studying enough. You learn it through positive experiences. You learn that there's a limit, and and you just begin to understand these things. And and good parenting helps kids to understand this. You learn this at work. You put in and put in and put in, and and you're anticipating good performance review, and everything's going to be well. Maybe you'll get a raise, and you have just gone above and beyond, and then your boss doesn't give you a raise at all. And you're like, I'm not sure that's worth it. Um, Doing my job, yes, for God's glory, but the extra what was the return? And, and I think that one of the things that we see in the Bible is a sense of, I've been really, really faithful, and I was anticipating some fruit for this. Um, not, and by fruit, I don't mean personal reputation. I don't mean accolade. I don't mean people patting you on the back, but results for this. Moses expects some fruitfulness. He comes back. He, he spends 40 years in Egypt. He spends 40 years in the desert. He comes and, and is God's instrument to rescue the Jews out of Egypt. He, he expects some fruitfulness. His anticipation is this, that, that the people seeing God's wonderful delivering hand through the Passover and the Red Sea, that they will be all on board with hearing truth from God and following God. And what he ends up with is a whole host of miserable, ungrateful rebels. And he's just devastated by this to the point that he's like, God, I'd actually, I'd rather die than keep leading these people. The fruitlessness of the leadership 
I'm just not interested in the prophet Elijah goes through the same. God, kill me. I'd rather you kill me than I continue to do this because I'm prophesying. No one is listening. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. At Jeremiah's beginning, he's told, don't bother to get married. Don't bother to have kids because ain't nobody going to listen to you anyway. That sounds like a fun job. Isaiah is told to preach until everybody is revealed to be a rebel, broken and resistant to God. And, and, and Isaiah's like, now how long do I preach that message? <laughs> as long as I want you to, till it's really revealed that nobody's going to repent. Wow, that sounds like fun. Like the fruitlessness of this. Jesus experiences a degree of fruitlessness when everyone abandons him. Everyone except his mom, a few other ladies, and John abandon him, betray him at his crucifixion. We look back and we say, but look how the church has changed the world. Look how uh, Christ has changed the world through redeeming lost people to himself. Yeah, that all happened after he died and resurrected. He's healing people and they're wanting to kill him for it. There's the struggle of fruitlessness in our lives when we've been faithful that is hard to process. Nehemiah is an astoundingly faithful man. He has risen to the level of being a cupbearer to the most powerful king on the planet. That is literally his most trusted household servant, bar none, because this is the guy that's the gatekeeper to prevent people from using common assassination tools. He is, there's no way you get to that without faithfulness. He is a gifted organizer and administrator and leader. He sets vision and he knows how to manage people. He's faithful. And all of this builds to this moment of when he gets to go to back to Jerusalem and lead another group of people who rebuild the walls and who establish the community. And Nehemiah is faithful and he spends 15 years of his life in this. 15 years. He gets to the end of it. And where's the fruit? Where is it? What he's left with is a community of rebels who still don't obey God, who make promises and break them, who haven't grown in maturity. That's what he's got. That's all he's got. And it is hard for Nehemiah to process this. And so our last sermon in Nehemiah can actually help us. Because we can watch, and, and so what Nehemiah doesn't do for us is Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is not like a Pauline epistle to us that says, hey, do this, 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 and this. Um, this is not, you can't write a book like here's your five self-help steps to overcome discouragement of fruitlessness. It's not prescriptive that way. It's descriptive to us. It shows us how a faithful servant of God works through this. And I believe that we can look at Nehemiah, we can look at his book, we can look at his life, and that can help us when you and I experience seasons of fruitlessness so that we can stay firm in our faithfulness. And so we'll journey various spots in Nehemiah this morning, um, and I think that we will end and my trust is that your heart will be as encouraged as mine was in studying through this today. First of all, I just want us to help us understand that what we have here is what the book... It, now I'm wondering if my notes are all out of order to help me out. No, I just have a different title. Ha, ah, here we go. First thing I want us to understand is this. You have to evaluate life and events to even get here. 
there has to be some kind of, nobody likes evaluation. Nobody likes going in for job evaluation. Nobody likes, even when you think you're going to get a good grade, I've never met people that are super excited about that report card. There's always a a twinge of fear. There's always a risk that you're going to be wrongly evaluated. My, my, when we moved my mom this past summer, um, they actually found my, I think it was my half-year kindergarten report card. Um, and so my children got great delight out of that. Um, now, my kindergarten teacher was my first serious crush at five. Um, this blonde, long blonde-haired um, a Swedish girl that was probably maybe 23. She was, I think it was, we were either her first kindergarten class or her second, super young. I mean, I remember to me, she was just like the vision of beauty. So I was the kid that I refused to learn how to write my address because the punishment was you got, you had to stay inside during recess for one-on-one time with Miss Betsy Krause to be taught how to write your address. Man, I slow rolled that thing for months because I'm like, I don't know how to write my address. Uh, play on the monkey bars one-on-one time with Betsy Krause. I'm going there all day. Um, I was a mess as a child, as you can tell. And so when she's like writing my report card, you know, he's a very sensitive child. He plays with these things. You know, you're getting evaluated. How do you evaluate a five-year-old? Like, have fun. Don't hit other kids, right? Like, do life. Like, that's, that's the way it is. He's doing better at, you know, not picking his nose and eating it. Like, what do you, what do you expect? And so when we evaluate, sometimes, though, we can evaluate wrong things. Uh, I saw one lady, she was responding to her child's report card this past week. I think her child was four. It was in pre-K. And one of the questions was, does this child take their academics seriously? He's four. He's four. The mother was like, I don't care. He's four. Like, stack the blocks, draw a picture, you're fine. Just enjoy being with other children. It's good. You're good, right? And, and so what do we evaluate? In the United Kingdom, one hospital was evaluating patient satisfaction and treatment. And so they established kind of a rule, a four-hour window for someone to be treated. And so at the end of the four hours, there was an automated system that moved people up the list of their importance, now, in one sense, you're like, that's a good idea, because we've all been, most of us have been stuck in emergency rooms before forever, right? And you're like, that'd be nice if the doctors are actually being sent to you or the hospital staff. The longer I get there, maybe I'll get, the problem was they started having people die. Because as other folks that maybe had serious injuries or serious medical needs, they were going up that list, they would get to that end of the four-hour window and doctors were being sent to people that were, that were in bad shape but in, moved in front of critically care patients because we don't want to violate the four-hour window. And so patient, get this now, patient satisfaction went up, but so did death rate. At the end of the day, what's more important? All the patients leave happy or all the patients leave? And so they understood we're evaluating the wrong things. I think when we think about evaluation, it's going to be really important when we look at things that are happening that we evaluate rightly. Israel evaluates wrongly. They say we want a king. We base it on who's the tallest, best-looking guy. We want King Saul. They evaluate poorly. Uh, when people looked at Jesus, they said, we don't want that king. 
because he's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And so when people were left to their own devices to evaluate what we need as a king, they chose the worst guy they could have picked, and they reject the best guy they could pick. We are all prone to doing bad evaluation. Nehemiah's book is a memoir of evaluation. The whole book, 13 chapters. When we say memoir, and this is something I have not keyed in on for the sake of getting to this at the end, is that there's a whole structural part of it that I haven't addressed, and it's this. There's 15 years here, 12 chapters of the 13, 12 of the 13 cover one year, and that's it. That's all they talk about, and probably less than a year, probably more like eight to ten months. And so we have a 15-year time slice of Nehemiah's leadership, and we have maybe a year of it recorded for us, which should tell you a lot about the danger of approaching Nehemiah as a book to teach you about leadership. It's like if you wanted to hear from some high-powered CEO that served at IBM for 25 years successfully, and you said, I want to hear about all the lessons you learned and all the things you did over those 25 years, the most important things, and all they told you about was the decisions they made in the first year, and that's it. You know as well as I do, then you probably haven't learned a lot about their leadership or style. You've only learned what they've wanted to tell you, and it's one slice. All we get is one slice. Chapter 13 is written at the end of it, and it's just talking about the effect of it. It's a memoir. The point of the memoir, what is it? Is it about rebuilding the walls? In one sense, yes. But the structure of the book points to a different point of it. And so let me maybe explain it this way. It's a message. And it's a message, first of all, to King Artaxerxes. When you study through the book of Nehemiah and commentators and theologians, biblical scholars were like, what? Why is this written? And what is it about? Why is he telling us this story? Why do we get essentially one year of 15 and then a retrospective on the 15 years all the way? And that's all we get. Certainly other big things happened. Well, you might remember all the way at the beginning of the book, Nehemiah is sent by King Artaxerxes after making an appeal to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And the structure of Nehemiah matches at least three other accounts we have from ancient Near East literature, one in Egypt and two in Babylon, where servants, leading servants, were sent to do a project and they send reports back to the king about how the project's going. The structure's the same. What this is, is 12 chapters is essentially Nehemiah giving us the intro about the background to it in the first couple chapters. And then what we're getting is Nehemiah's journals and his memoirs of what he sent back to King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes, remember, has sent the most faithful member of his household. He wants to know how things are going. Give me a report. You report to me. That's what servants do. They report to the leader about what's going on. How's the job going? We've all been called in by bosses asking us, how's this job going? Nehemiah is telling him what is happening. First 12 chapters are report to him. What's fascinating about Nehemiah, though, is there are a couple of moments that break into that, and they tell us something else. Nehemiah's memoir was, in large part, and part of the report he sends back to King Artaxerxes, but it's also a report to the king of kings. 
Nehemiah is written like one who has considered, how do I give an account to Artaxerxes? But the deepest part of his heart is how would I give an account to God about what I've done? Do you ever think about that? How would I answer to God about the things that I've done? About the things that I have accomplished? I remember being given jobs to do by my dad at times and then being a foolish and also normal child, goofing off. And my dad showed up and saying, is that all you've gotten done? There's an expectation of what I should be able to produce in that time frame. It's given an account. Nehemiah lives in the world that he will give an account to God, and he's thinking through this, and it's actually God's kindness to us that he's writing it down. The guy that is noted as one of the best leaders in all the Bible is constantly thinking, how would I give an account to God for my leadership? And this is what he thinks towards the end of his book. Not very much. I actually don't have a lot to show for it. Nehemiah's memoir is him processing through what's happening. Now there's a couple of breaks. And so what Nehemiah has done structurally is he has written this memoir that he sent to Artaxerxes. And our best understanding is now at the end of the 15 years, he took that memoir, his journals, his scrolls, and now he's thinking through it and he starts making additions. Let me show you some of those. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 5, you can see how he does this. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 all the way down through verse 13, this is when he's given an account about how the nobles and officials are abusing the poor, how they're taking advantage of them, they're taking them into debt, these guys are losing their properties, and so everybody is being subjugated by these nobles and officials, and all of this is happening while the wall is being built. Because people have left their farms to come to the city to build the walls, they're building the walls, they can't farm the land. They're selling all that they have. This is its current time. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 13 are current time of the wall building. How long did it take to build the walls? 52 days. That's all it took. Remember, because that was part of the amazing thing of what God had done. But then when you get chapter, four, chapter 5, verse 14, look what he says. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years. Verses 1 through 13 are the current time of the building. You can't write verse 14 until it's all done. Verses 1 through 13 were real time. Verse 14 is Nehemiah inserting back into his memoir a retrospective on what happened and what he was feeling and what he did. Verses 1 through 13 would have been that part of the memoir, King Artaxerxes, this is what I did. Verse 14 down through the end of the chapter to verse 19 is him saying, God, this is what I did. How do we know that? Look at the end of the chapter, what he says in verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is like Nehemiah looking back and he's saying, God... Look what I did. And what did he do? What did, you remember what we learned he did? He, he, he forwent uh, all the money and that he was supposed to get as a governor. 
So I'm giving up my salary. He, he went without the animals that were supposed to be provided because as the governor, it was his job to be feeding all these emissaries, feed the nobles, feed the officials. And so there was this special monetary allotment taxes that were used to provide for that. Nehemiah went with all that. He paid for it out of his own pocket. So for 12 years, Nehemiah sacrificed. And that's what he's saying. Remember God, what I have done. How would I give an account to God for the faithfulness that I have shown. It indicates an addition by him. You can see it again if you go to chapter 6. If you go to chapter 6, and if you were to begin in verse 1 and to start all, going all the way down, what you end up with all the way down through verse 13 is a, uh, a tale once again of Sambalat and Tobiah. And Sambalat and Tobiah and the wicked things that they do, these are the enemies of God. Uh, remember, Tobiah is the guy that eventually moves into the temple, that, that Nehemiah drags him out of the temple, throws him out, throws all of his furniture out. I mean, I just, there's, there's moments in scripture you wish there was like a uh, security camera footage of in the temple uh, of the room with the doorway that Tobiah is living in. And you kind of would see Nehemiah go in, you see Tobiah running out, and like right after Tobiah is like this chair. <laughs> And then the lamp coming flying out. And all, you're like, whoa, what is going on? This is Sambalat and Tobiah. The first multiple verses all the way to verse 13 are the real time during those 52 days. But you get to verse 14 and there's this weird addition. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God. According to these things that they did. And also, and we get this person, the prophetess Noadiah. And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Who are they and when did they happen? Sometime during that 12 years. Noadiah doesn't show up anywhere else. Neither does all these multiple prophets. So what Nehemiah has done is he's looked back and he's thinking back to major... What if I were to ask you, remember several weeks ago, several weeks ago I talked to you about the story of your life. And I said, how would you tell somebody... And maybe in maybe a few hours, three hours about your life, what would you say? Well, you, you can be pretty comprehensive in three hours. You can cover lots of ground. But if I had to shrink that down to 30 minutes, what would you tell somebody in 30 minutes? If you shrunk it even down further to three minutes, what if you went to an elevator ride of 30 seconds? What would you tell somebody in 30 seconds about who you are? The key things of your life, you think back to them. And that's the way we tend to think. What are the major moments of my life? What are the key aspects, key events that have taken place? Nehemiah is going back through his memoirs, and he is thinking back to key events. One of the key events that stood out to him was the enemies that he faced, the opposition that he had experienced while he was leading in Jerusalem. And so he makes this additional statement. You can see it again if you go all the way to chapter 13. In chapter 13, you might remember the structure from last week. The first several verses, and this is obvious. This, is, this one is, I think, super obvious. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. This is when they hear the reading of the, of the word, and they kick all these um, foreign nationals who were leading them to idolatry. They kick them out of the land. But then, if you go to verse 4, he goes back in time. He says, now before this. And from verse 4 of chapter 13 of the end, he's saying this is the chronological, this, this is going back in time. This is, this is Michael J. Fox, back to the future. We're going back in time because I want you to know what's going on. Do you know what Nehemiah is doing 
He's thinking about the hard things he had to do as a leader. And that's why the structure of chapter 13 matches the three commitments they had made in chapter 10 that they violated all three of them. Um, We are going to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. We are going to uh, follow temple guidelines. And so we're going to provide for the temple. We're going to have the Levites come back. We're going to feed the Levites. We're going to give the tithes so temple worship can continue. And we're not going to intermarry anymore. Those are the three commitments. No intermarriage, provide for the temple worship, observe the Sabbath. And what does he do in chapter 13? He's thinking back. And what he's, it's like he's talking to God about all the things he's done. And he's saying, God, look at all the ways I was faithful. You actually see it show up in chapter 13. If you go to verse 14, you may be starting to notice a trend Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. You see it again down in verse 22. He says this, Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. You see it again in verse 29. He says, remember them, oh my God. He's talking about the ones who did evil. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And you see it one more time in verse 31. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. You see a theme here. Nehemiah's memoir, that's what the book of Nehemiah is, is an accounting to the king of what he has done. And like any good evaluation, you could boil it down to this. Look at the work that I have done. Does it pass the test? Is it enough? I was talking to a friend of mine this week and reflecting on parenting. Um... As I have a senior this year, and by God's kind grace, his schedule is easier, lighter. And so every other Friday, we get to go hang out, uh, have lunch together. It's a lot of fun. He's a fun kid. I love spending time with him. And I was just sending a message to my friend. I said, it's just one of those things that I think as a dad, you think, did I do enough? And every good parent I've ever met in my life thinks that way. Did I do enough? Did I do enough? And, and let's be honest, every one of us answers no. Like we just do. Because we are faulty, weak people. We parent our kids when we're like in our 20s, when they're little. They don't know what we're doing, right? We don't have a clue. We're harder on some things than we should be. We're looser on other things than we ought to be. We, we're bad examples on other things, and we're like trying to do the best we can, and we look back and we're like, wow, God, <laughs> thank you, first of all, for preserving their life, because I'm clueless. Help them to forget my mistakes, embrace whatever good they may have learned in my home, and be a far better parent than I ever was. Like, that's just your perspective, and I think that's true for anyone. You look back, and you, and there's, but there's this part of us, it's enough. And, and I think that's how we tend to approach life. Anyone who is serious, Intentional and introspective. 
And so what's weird is you can get to, to older, you can get to in your 20s or 30s and think, well, look what I've achieved or what I've accomplished. I've got a career, I've got a job, I'm doing this, I've worked really hard, or maybe I finished school. You can get to your midlife, right? Like, like in, in, I'm 49 and I'm, and I'm like, well, look what I've done and these are the things I've done. You can get older and be feeling like you're towards the twilight of your life and say, God, look what I've done. And it's so weird because all of us suddenly feel like that six-year-old bringing home some pottery project that was supposed to be a candy dish, and just thankfully it's in some cup shape, holding it out and saying, God, is, is it enough? And we know it's, it feels like a mess. There is a part of Nehemiah's heart that's doing that. He's looking back on 15 years and he's like, God, could you, is it enough? And so when we think about evaluation, we tend to think success or failure. I think what's interesting is when you read Nehemiah's memoir, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah doesn't focus at all on any of the things that some people might have thought of as success. I think that's what's really fascinating to me. Even increasingly as I'll see certain people, hear certain people, I'm preaching Nehemiah as the leader, and I'm like, just so you know, Nehemiah didn't feel successful. He did not finish his life as a leader and say, look what I've accomplished. And so people are like, man, look at what he did. Like he led this whole group of people back from Israel, another whole group. Man, that was amazing. He convinced King Artaxerxes to let him come back. He rebuilt the wall in 52 days. He rebuked the officials and got them in line. He provided for the poor people so they could accomplish it. He led the choirs so they celebrated the rebuilding of the walls. He stood up against the enemies of God. Nehemiah doesn't focus on any of it. All the things other people would think of as success. What a successful steward he must have been to have funded this project. What a successful negotiator he must have been. What a successful speaker he must have been. What a a successful motivator, visionary he must have been. Nehemiah doesn't focus on any of those things. What he keys in on is what his heart wanted the most, and he doesn't feel like it actually happened. What he focuses on is two things. The pain of the enemies on one hand and steps forward that didn't last. What mattered most to Nehemiah felt fruitless. Let me journey you all the way back to chapter 1. What did Nehemiah really want? If you go all the way back to chapter 1, we can see his heart put on display. In verses 8 and 9. This is the first time we see this linguistic language device thrown in. This is one of those moments I love to pause and remind you that while it can be helpful to know and understand some Hebrew structure and some Greek, you don't need that to understand God's word in a deep way. Because you're going to see it right here. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. What did Nehemiah want? Did he really want walls rebuilt? Sure, that was a side Benny, a necessary thing that had to happen for what Nehemiah wanted most. And what Nehemiah wanted most was God to be glorified because his people had been restored. And it didn't happen. Not in Nehemiah's day. 
Nehemiah sees the work as fruitless, costly, and not finished. He's given everything he can to it, and it hasn't seemed to work. And so let's just take a moment, though, and talk about this word that we keep seeing show up, that becomes this literary device that he keeps using, remember, 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 over and over again. And, and so he's remembering, and he's wanting God to remember. It's a fascinating word in the Bible. Uh, it's this Hebrew word, zahar, and every time it's used, it's not just recollect something you may have forgotten. It's always a call to action throughout the Old Testament. Whether you're addressing God or you're addressing people, when you said remember, it always concluded with then do. Remember, to say remember is to say, please act on what you already know. It's a way of looking at somebody and saying, you may know to do what's right, it's time to start doing right. You see it shown up and just, there's a number of examples we could go to, but for sake of time, Exodus 20 verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. Why? So I remember it's Sabbath day to do what? To keep it holy. Deuteronomy 16.3, they're told to observe Passover. And when, he, when they're told to observe Passover, it's so that they remember the Exodus. So I remember the Exodus, so I do this thing. I, I, in one way, I'm saddened that last week was, was communion, because what does he say to do it? As long as you do this, do this in what? Remembrance of me. It's an action. To remember is always to act, and to forget is to fail to act on something you already know. You see it with the chief cupbearer who was supposed to remember Joseph. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And what he meant was he refused to bring him before the king. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's like you go to all this school, to all this study. That, that moment has actually always bugged me. Because if you were in prison and you were with a guy that told you what your dreams meant, told you who was going to die, told you who was going to live, there's this momentous moment, this, this unbelievable epic moment where you get taken out of this horrible prison cell, brought before Pharaoh, and you're delivered. You would have to be on some serious medication to forget what just happened, wouldn't you? He didn't forget... He refused to act. That's the way the language works. It shows up all the way through the Old Testament in particular. Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1, to go back to it then in verse 8, he's talking to the omniscient God. Does he believe that God has somehow willfully or somehow, what does he say? Remember the word. And so what he does is he's saying, God, act on the promises you have made. Do you remember where we're told that God forgets our sins? Do you know what that actually is saying? He's refusing to act against us for our sinfulness because he's put his wrath on Jesus. And so this remember theme that shows up all the way through is Nehemiah asking God to act in a particular way. 
First thing that I would tell you is judge the right things. Nehemiah's focus isn't on things that don't matter. If we put this in modern language, and um, pastors particularly can be prone to this, how do you evaluate success or how do you evaluate fruitfulness in ministry? And they commonly will joke and say it's the three B's. Buildings, bodies, and budgets. That's how you evaluate it. Buildings, you got bigger buildings, nicer buildings. Bodies, you got enough bodies, more bodies. Budgets, you got an increasing healthy budget. Is that a right evaluation tool? Now remember, if we evaluate wrong, we're going to have a mess. We're going to choose things like King Saul and reject King Jesus. We're going to do things like have a four-hour time window to, make, to achieve or increase patient satisfaction while we're killing people. You, you know, the nice thing about it, if you die, you can't fill out a patient satisfaction form. If we get evaluation wrong, we're going to be a mess. What about in parenting? How do you evaluate it? How do you evaluate this has been fruitful? How about in marriage? How about in friendship? How do you evaluate fruitful friendship? How do you evaluate evangelism? How do you evaluate fruitful discipleship? How do you evaluate fruitful community? By every observable metric, Nehemiah's investment, Nehemiah's ministry, Nehemiah's sacrifice was fruitless in the ways that mattered the most. Who cares that the temple is rebuilt and the walls are rebuilt when you invite the enemy of God Almighty to live in them? What good is it? The first way I would challenge you to process fruitlessness is make sure you're evaluating the right things no matter how painful it is. If you shift the target, you will miss the journey God has you on and the blessings he intends for you. And you can do it either way. You can do it as the way I've been describing. You can also do it in a way that maybe there's been real fruitfulness, but because you're focused on the wrong things, you're missing what God has done. You have to be willing to wrestle through this in honesty and in integrity. Be willing to own the feelings of fruitlessness that you'll experience. Be willing to be honest about the discouragement. Nehemiah is, Moses is, Elijah is, Paul is. I think we can be too. Be willing to sit with uncomfortable realities. And so how do I process through then this feeling of fruitlessness? First thing is I would say is Nehemiah helps us because he puts it in one of two buckets. And this might actually put words to your sense of fruitlessness at times. And the buckets he puts it in is that which is evil and that which is righteous. And ultimately, you could even say it this way. What Nehemiah longs for is for the unseen to be made visible. The hidden to be made obvious. That's what his heart is longing for. And so when he prays on two different occasions, remember, O oh God, them. Remember the enemies and the wicked they've done. Uh, Tobias, Sambalot, Noadiah, the other prophet and prophetesses, um, the guys who do intermarriage, the guys who let Tobiah move into the temple. Remember them, God. Punish evil. It's a cry for justice. And what 
Nehemiah is experiencing is there's never been full justice. Now, the rapper reminds me of that. Nehemiah literally is like yanking guys' hair out that are the enemies of God, throwing people out of the temple, cleansing the temple, throw, you know, kicking these guys to the curb, saying, no, I'm not coming out in the valley to meet with you. You just want to kill me. Get out of here. But Nehemiah understands that that is partial justice. There's not full justice. It's not like God has spoken down from heaven and said, Tobiah and Sambalot are evil. No, Nehemiah is good. There is a heart in him that wants more. And there's nothing wrong with it because the more he wants is not vengeance. It's not revenge. He doesn't take the law into his own hands. The more he wants is God's holiness to be put on display as evil and wickedness are punished. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing Is God zealous for justice? Then if you follow God, you ought to be also. On the other hand, Nehemiah is desperate for righteousness to be rewarded. For there to be a true unveiling that if you will follow God, if you will honor God, he loves you and you're his child and he shouts glorious, praiseworthy things over you and he's pleased with you and he invites you into his kingdom and he celebrates what you've done because you love him because he first loved you. And it's this wonderful moment of joy and Nehemiah wants that celebrated. He wants the courage and the sacrifice to be noted. Why? Because his prayers for community restoration have simply not happened. The most he can point to, all the way back in chapter 1, when he says, remember God, return to me, he says, and I will keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the utmost parts, I'll bring them back, and I'll make them my people, and I'll, and I'll dwell there. The most Nehemiah can say is, man, my prayer was for everybody this to happen. It only happened for me. Where we will experience a sense of fruitlessness the most is where evil seems to triumph and righteousness doesn't seem to win. That's where it'll feel fruitless. This is why parents who have poured into their children, faulty, broken, mistaken, ain't nobody perfect, so if you judge by perfect standard, I, I, like you're trying to be God, and the last time I checked, there is somebody in the Bible who tries to be just like God. Things don't go well. Hint, hint, Satan. It's a satanic ideal to judge people by perfection. So everybody must. So, it, but it's like a parent who has poured in, who has done truth, who who tried to disciple, who tried to evangelize their children, who's tried to to love their children, tried to demonstrate Jesus to them in very imperfect ways, owning their failures, uh, being honest about who God is, trying to point, and then their children rebel and run the other direction. There's a devastation in their heart, and it feels fruitless. Why? Because it feels like evil won and righteousness lost. And so when that happens, there's a temptation to move the target then, isn't there? But they turned out okay because they got this degree or they're successful here, they've got married. And, but meanwhile, if they're really honest down their heart, what they really want most is that their child would just come to know Jesus. And they feel a sense of fruitlessness. 
And you could apply that in all kinds of areas. Some of you spent and, and are spending your entire life working careers trying to have integrity and doing it honestly because that's what God calls believers to do. Impacting and influencing your coworkers by showing them the love of Christ and showing them the gospel. And at times, by God's grace, telling them the gospel. And you are coming and you're going through your career. And if you think back, there's a part of your heart that wants to say, but was it worth it? feels, it can feel fruitless. You've shared the gospel with somebody time after time after time, and they continue to reject it. You can feel fruitless because it feels like evil wins and righteousness hasn't. And so how do we process it? As much as I've tried this week, I cannot put this process into tidy steps for you. And by you, I mean me. <laughs> um, Instead, I think it's a lot more like a game of whack-a-mole. Most of you know my first job was Chuck E. Cheese, fixing the video games. Pretty sweet for a 15-year-old until I had to get in the mouse suit. That was an unfortunate afternoon <laughs> for me and the children. Uh, right. But there's this game, whack-a-mole, and you get this little padded hammer, and you put your token in, and these little they look like little moles, and you hit them as they pop up all over the place, and however many you pop up, you get the tickets. I had to work on this game so much, I literally knew, I knew the routine. I could get the perfect score every time. Whack, 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 whack. And, and I want you to know this, processing through fruitlessness when you've been faithful is a lot more like whack-a-mole than do this step, finish it, go to the next step, finish it, go to the next step, finish it. And so finally you will arrive at a place where you have, are settled with the reality of God that you have been very, very faithful, but there's been no fruit and you can... And, be okay. I just want you to know that's not true. You could spend all day today playing whack-a-mole over these feelings of discouragement, feel better tomorrow, feel better the day after that, feel better the day after that, and in one afternoon uh, you're making dinner for your family and suddenly you have this overwhelming sense that it's all been a waste. And you'll feel like you're back playing whack-a-mole. And so I wish I could give you steps I can't. The best I can tell you is, is what I think Nehemiah describes to us is some important ways to live in an atmosphere that enables you to continue to be faithful even when you feel fruitless. Let me maybe give some of those to you. Number one, run to God. Nehemiah is noted as a man of prayer. There are 14 different prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Half of them, half of them are about feelings of fruitlessness. What do you think the theme of Nehemiah is? Well, it's all about how we can structure our leadership plans to achieve results. When half the time he spends talking to God about how this feels like a waste. Uh -uh. Nehemiah continually brings his complaint and plea to God to act in line with the faithfulness that has happened. But I, I want to push deeper. Because let me just ask this. Do we know that God will sort it out in the end? Is God going to sort it out in the end? Yeah. So can I just ask the hard question, why pray about it then? It feels a little bit like praying, God, would you one day bind Satan and throw him into hell? It's going to happen. 
So in these seasons of fruitlessness, despite our faithfulness, why run to God about it? If there isn't going to be some observable, encouraging fruit right now, will it even matter? I'm going to give you three, way, three reasons. Number one, number one, I believe you should run to God because it's expressing your reality. And I believe that's critically important. Let me explain it to you this way. What if I said this to you? Yeah, um, I got three wonderful children, 17, almost 16, 13. I don't ever tell them I love them because they already know it. Like, <laughs> Hello, loser dad. Nice to meet you. I don't bother to tell my wife I love her. She knows it. She, does. she knows it. I don't need to say it. She knows it. I don't say thank you. They know it. Why would I say thank you? You already know it. It makes you uncomfortable if I say thank you. I don't express gratitude. I don't express love. I don't express affection. I don't say I'm sorry because people can tell when I feel sorry because of the way I act. And you look at that and you would hear that and you would think that's crazy talk. I want you to know this because sometimes we communicate things because it helps build deeper communication which makes the relationship stronger. You should run to God because it's expressing the reality that you're existing in, and it will help to knit your heart closer to God. It will build a deeper relationship because it's you facing the reality that you both know you're living in. Number two, I tell you to run to God because it actually makes that truth even more real to you. When you're working with people that are struggling with discouragement, depression, they're bothered, you need to, they got to find out why do I feel this way? Is there, is there some things in my life or the way I'm processing, thinking through things that would really help me to know in reality? And expressing it helps to make the truth more real. Can it, just this past week, got a wonderful gift from somebody in the, in the church. It's beautiful. It's a wooden carved sparrow with a glorious card that reminds me of the truth that I am more precious to God than the sparrows. And so it's beautiful art. It's beautiful truth. It's, it's just wonderful. Expressing the reality of feeling, and, and, and not just feeling, because I'm going to be honest, is it that Nehemiah feels fruitless? Yes. But it's also that there has been a degree of fruitlessness. There just has. The community hasn't been restored. It's less than what he would have hoped for. Expressing the reality begins to remind us that he cares for us. He hears us. He knows us. It expresses the reality that he will deal with this sorrow. It declares by faith something that we understand are the two most important. They are the number one in two emotional needs that every person on this planet is born with. And that is to be seen and to be heard. Babies do it. They scream, see me and hear me. Expressing this reality to God in prayer by running to him will remind your hearts that he sees you and he hears you. And then thirdly, it can begin to turn your sorrow to hope. The horrible reality of fruitless ministry is that it's others dependent. That's part of what makes it so difficult. Parenting, parenting feels dependent on them. Like what are they going to do? You know, you go to go this weekend to any. I don't. I don't, I don't know if it's, they're doing like 
soccer right now or Little League Baseball, whatever, go there and you're going to find parents at, one, at any game who are living their identity through their kids, aren't they? It's horrible to watch. Because their sense of self is based upon that little child's performance. And there's every fiber of my being, I can't, because I want to scream, hey, loser! You're here to celebrate their growth and maturity and joy. Get on board with your job. But it would be so hypocritical for me to do that because I tend to do the same things. Because we feel fruitless, but it's based on others and our friendships and our marriage and our evangelism, our discipleship and our parenting and our church ministry. It's like if they don't, they, whoever that they is, if they're not my boss, my, my coworkers, my neighbors, my community, my, everybody, my, if they don't do what they're supposed to be doing as I'm being faithful, it's like my sense of fruitfulness is dependent on them and I can't control them. So when we run to God about it, we're going to the only one who can do anything about it. And it begins to turn our sorrow to hope. Could Nehemiah really declare it fruitless when God eventually does punish the wicked? When God has Jesus ride through the walls that Nehemiah built? When God has Jesus cleanse the temple? Just like, like can you imagine how many people, I don't know if, it's, if it was modern day evangel, evangelicals, I'll get the word out in a minute. They would read Nehemiah and be like, Nehemiah was an angry man. Did you see what he did to Tobiah? What a terrible leader he was. And then it's like record scratch moment because you got Jesus making a threefold cord. Can you, can you imagine that scene? I'm making a whip. What? Get out of the temple. And suddenly like, maybe Nehemiah wasn't so bad. But Nehemiah doesn't even get to see that. He's a precursor, a forerunner of Jesus' zeal for the holiness of God. Is he really fruitless then? Taking your fruitlessness to God can center your sorrow on the one who never breaks his promises. Secondarily, God remembers everything. We're almost done. Hang in there. My youngest, my kids love being illustrations. Um, my youngest, when he was really little, like two, he had this really fun thing that he would do. We would like, maybe go to Buffalo Wild Wings, slam some wings, or go to Chick-fil-A, or some, do something fun, go to the pool. And like we'd be driving home from our pool. The, our neighborhood pool is like on the other side of our neighborhood, and so it's like, I don't know, three minutes. We'd get, we'd get in a van to drive back from the pool, and you'd hear this voice from the back, Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, you number? He's that little, number. Wouldn't even say, you number? I'd be like, number what? He'd be like, hey, Dad, you, you number that time we went to the pool? Or be like, you remember that time we went to Buffalo Wild Wings? Like, we're on Harbison, right? And I'm like, yeah, son. You mean like the other time? He goes, no, Dad, you remember that time we went to Buffalo Wild Wings? We ate wings and we watched football. You remember that time I jumped off the side of the pool and I swam to the other side? And it was so funny because, of course, I hadn't forgotten. It was like 45 seconds ago. There was actually so much wisdom in that two-year-old because he was telling you something. Part of the way we process through joyful or sorrowful events is to think through them. And remember them. And it's a call to action. This was so fun. Let's do it again. Nehemiah keeps saying, God, do you remember? Do you ever feel like that in your fruitlessness? 
God, would you remember the tears, the prayers, the hidden hurts that no one else saw, the dreams unfulfilled, the nightmares made reality, the evil who went free, the righteousness that was not real. God, would you remember? Is there a chance that Nehemiah had forgotten some of the good? 12 years, or excuse me, one year and 12 chapters, 15 years condensed to fruitlessness. Is there a chance that Nehemiah had forgotten some of the good? The ones who had stayed true. The ones who had come with him from Babylon. The gratitude of the poor as their debts were relieved. None of that was the fullness of fruit that Nehemiah had desired for God's glory. But wasn't it fruit? I think so, because when Jesus shows up, he actually teaches us something. And Darren read it this morning. God does remember, and he actually even remembers the faithfulness that we forgot. Because there'll come a day, he will look at you. He will look at you. And he would say, come forward and be rewarded for your faithfulness of giving me a cup of cold water. Come forward for your faithfulness in loving your friends well. Come forward in your faith, for your faithfulness of that meal you made, that card you sent, that call, that text. Come forward for your faithfulness of that prayer. Come forward for your faithfulness of that time you shared the gospel. Come forward for your faithfulness of those discipleship meetings. Come forward for your faithfulness of caring for your parents. Come forward, come forward. And you'd be like, God, I don't remember doing that. And he'd be like, every time you did it for one of them, you did it for me. I remember. I have not. Hear me now. He has not forgotten your faithfulness. And that, that is what he will reward. He is a good, good father. And so as we finish Nehemiah, man, I wish I could jump back about 2,500 years and say, Nehemiah, God has not forgotten. In fact, Nehemiah, he remembers all the innumerable ways you were faithful in those 15 years, even things you forgot you did. And he's going to reward them all. He's going to celebrate them all. He's going to put the fruit that really matters on display. And what fruit is that? That God was so glorious, so lovely, so worthy, that faithful service to him outweighs any reward here, any recognition here, any reputation here. And that's why he will use this word, these words the next time you see him, which will be the first time you see him, he is going to look at you and he's going to say, enter in, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest.